Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I'm going to keep going on our Christmas series. If you're, uh, if you're new here and, and you're, uh, you were here to watch your grandkids or someone on stage, we're so glad to have you with us. Uh, this December, we've been working through a Christmas series a little different than most, and I've been trying to ground the Christmas series in its biblical context. I think this is so uh, hyper-important. Uh, so often we make Christmas into this, uh, it's a standalone holiday. It's its own story unto itself. And, but Christmas isn't a story unto itself. It's part of a much bigger story. It doesn't start at Christmas and end at Christmas. It starts way back at the beginning of the Bible. And, and, and we've been looking a lot at Genesis 3.15, and we'll go back there and look at it again today. But unless you see the unfolding of the Christmas story in the Old Testament, you lose all the urgency. I mean, Christmas just becomes a nice holiday. It becomes a nice story, a neat story, a familiar story, certainly. But it doesn't have the urgency. It doesn't have, like, the why. It doesn't have the awe. Christmas, I think, for many of us in our culture, has completely lost the awe. We don't stand in awe of God at, at Christmas. We have nice, warm feelings. And of course, nice warm feelings aren't all bad, and certainly we enjoy all the family gatherings and the Christmas trees and, and all that fun stuff, but there's much more to Christmas uh, than nice. And so we've been unfolding this December, the Christmas story, where it starts, and, uh, and so today we're going to do that again. And so we're going to be in Genesis a lot, but I'm actually going to start this message in, uh, in, an, in an epic uh, passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 12, the first six verses is a prophetic retelling of a major storyline of the entire Old Testament. Okay? Revelation chapter 12, the first six verses, is a prophetic retelling. We often, when we think of prophecy, we think of telling things into the future. But often, uh, prophecy is giving us new insight. It's giving us God's sight into things from the past. Revelation 12, verses 1 to 6, is one of those passages. It's a prophetic passage that looks back and in six short verses retells an entire massive backbone storyline of the Old Testament that culminates in Christmas. Okay, now Christmas isn't the end of the story. Jesus still has to come back and set up his kingdom. We are looking forward to that. But this particular storyline in the Old Testament, Christmas is the culmination of it. It's one of the major stories of the Old Testament. It's the backbone uh, of the Old Testament. I'm going to show you that today. We're going to start in Revelation, and then we're going to move through, through the uh, Old Testament rather quickly, all in one message. So uh, buckle up and, and, and hold on. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Father... Lord Jesus, I want two things from this message. I want us to love and adore you more at the end of it. I want to see apathy and lethargy burning away. And I want to see a zeal for you growing in our hearts. And secondly, Lord Jesus, I want the Bible to make way more sense to us. I want us to have a hunger for it by your Holy Spirit, that this message would do those two things, to kindle a new passion for you and a new love and adoration for you this Christmas season and for us to know and understand your word better. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So starting in Revelation, going to the end before we go back to the beginning. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 says this, and a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, I, I, this, this is such an epic passage of Scripture, and I don't have time to get into it, but there's two sides to this passage of Scripture, and it's so amazing. So in these six verses, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to retell a major storyline of the Old Testament. But at the very same time, and I don't have, to get, have time to get into this, everything he, everything he writes in these six verses also played out in the stars and the constellations and the planets. You can go back in time. They have astronomy programs now. You can look at them online for free. You can go back and you can look at the night sky at any point in history because it's all just physics. It's all just math. And because the stars all and constellations all move according to math and you can go back in time and you can go anywhere on the earth and you can see what did the night sky look like on such and such a date. And what's fascinating, and I do not have time to go there, but just so you know, it's just to glorify God even more. 
this, these six verses not only retell a major storyline of the Old Testament, things that happened in human history, but at the same time as these things were happening in human history, everything in this passage also represents constellations, stars, and planets, things that happen in the heavens. And that should absolutely just blow our mind at the awesomeness and sovereignty of God. That, be, you know, the, all, the, all the motion of the stars, that started at the moment time began when God created the universe. That's all according to mathematics. They started moving. And so it's almost like the, the sky, the night sky is like a giant watch that God set at the beginning of time. And he knew exactly that at the right moments when things would be happening on the earth among people and in human history, the stars and the constellations and planets would align to tell that story at the same time. We just need to be in awe of him. We just need to be in absolute awe of him. But I have no time, even though I just took some time to tell you generalities, I have no time to delve into the specifics of how that works, but just know a great sign appeared in heaven. These things also happened in the constellations. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. So again, these things also, what's going to happen next, also happened in the sky with the constellations. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. So leaving the stars thing out of it for now, just looking at the human events and the history that this is retelling. Uh, who obviously is this child who is born to rule all the nations? And we looked extensively at this idea of all the nations last week in the Great Commission and all that sort of stuff, and, uh, which is really uh, amazing. But this child who is to rule all the nations clearly this is speaking of Jesus, okay? And so we see this woman about to give birth. So one of the prophetic echoes of this picture is this is Mary about to have a child. But this, actually, this story prophetically retells something that, yes, it happened at Christmas, but it goes much deeper than that. It's telling a much bigger story where there's echoes and eddies, and this picture is repeated throughout history. Well, but, but before we get into all that, who is this dragon? So we'll see up there that there's this dragon that stood before the woman when, that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, uh, a lot of times, I think clearly most of us probably have figured out already that that dragon must be uh, Satan. But I just want to say a little something. I'll show that to you for sure so that you know we're not just guessing or making things up. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of times, when we think of the book of Revelation, a lot of people complain, they think, the book of Revelation is filled with all kinds of symbols. It's hard to understand. You just have to guess at it. But one of the things you have to understand about the book of Revelation is, yes, it has a lot of symbols in it, but almost every time there is a symbol in the book of Revelation, John explains what the symbol means, usually in the same chapter. So Revelation actually isn't as hard to understand as most people think. So he talks about the dragon here in this passage. If we just go ahead a few verses, he's going to clearly explain who the dragon is. Okay, if we just go ahead to verse 9, uh, John tells us this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we see clearly here that the dragon is Satan, okay? But more than just the dragon, John then draws in a third thing, and he talks about the ancient serpent. Now, who is the ancient serpent, okay? This is a direct reference. This is taking us all the way back to Genesis 3.15 in the Garden of Eden. Now, most of us just automatically assume, this isn't like big news to us, we read the story of, of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, and we think, of course, that's Satan, the serpent is Satan. But actually, do you know that nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that the serpent in the garden of Eden is Satan until this right here at the end of the Bible. This is the verse that tells us, actually, that goes back and says that serpent wasn't just any serpent. It wasn't just any fallen angel. That was actually Satan himself. But it's very interesting to me that John in Revelation 12 is going to tie this back. This storyline, he is explicitly tying back to Genesis 3, which is what we've been doing this whole series, tying the Christmas story back to the beginning. Okay? And so we have this dragon trying to devour the child. Why is the dragon trying to devour 
the child. Well, we'll go back to Genesis 3.15 because this is all part of the Bible's storyline. And if you don't understand this, number one, you will not understand Christmas. But number two, you won't ever really grasp what's going on in the Old Testament. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see this is right after Adam and Eve have fallen. We've looked at it in every message in this series. We're going to see it in a whole new light again this morning. But Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve have fallen now, God is speaking to Adam and Eve and the serpent, who is Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. And we've looked at this in this series already. It's not just talking about your little brother punched you in the head and gave you a bruise. The, the implication is a crushing, a conquering, a crushing of the head. Okay? And you shall bruise his heel. Now, in this promise, this is the initial promise. It's amazing to me the mercy of God that it's right after Adam and Eve have sinned, he's already giving a promise. There's not this long period of you need to feel guilty and condemned for a while. It's right after they've fallen, he gives them a promise. And the promise is filled with hope for humankind. I'm going to send a promised one, the offspring of a woman. He's going to be a human. That's what that means. I'm not, God wasn't going to send an angel to fix our problems. He said, I'm going to send a promised one, the offspring of a woman. He's going to be a human. This Messiah is going to be a human being. And this, he's going to be the one that's going to fix this problem you guys have created. So in that promise, tremendous hope for us as human beings. But at the very same time that this promise gives us as human beings tremendous hope, at the very same time, this is a proclamation of doom for Satan who's standing right there and hearing it too. This very same thing that for us is a promise of hope is a proclamation of doom on Satan. And so the moment, and you just have to, you have to understand this because everything else it basically in the Old Testament flows out of, what, out of how Satan is going to interpret this prophecy and what is going to happen and how it culminates at Christmas. But the moment God says here, the offspring of a woman, a human being is going to be born, it's going to crush your head, Satan now has one top number one priority, and that is stop this promised one from being born. That's it. So we see in Revelation 12, we see a prophetic retelling of the Old Testament, which is we see multiple applications and echoes. One of them is Christmas when Mary has the baby Jesus. What does Herod do? He kills all the baby boys. Why? He's trying to devour the child. But that was only one echo of this bigger storyline. The dragon, from the moment Genesis 3.15 is uttered, the dragon was trying to devour that child. He has one goal. I must keep this promised one from being born. I must keep this promised human being from being born because when he's born, I'm doomed. My head will be crushed. Okay? So now I want to take you on a whirlwind tour of the Old Testament, and I want to show you this story at work and how it culminates in Christmas. And we start in Genesis 6. We've talked lots about the flood in this series as well. I want to show you, again, a new angle of it uh, today. Genesis 6. So Genesis 3, God says a, a human Messiah is coming, the offspring of a woman. One of the very next things that happens is Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, which is the lead-up to why God has to do something as extreme as the flood. Genesis 6, verse 1 says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, the question is, who are these sons of God? Okay? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4, the Nephilim, which literally means giants. It just, it's a Hebrew word that is giant. So you could just read the giants, okay? But the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so we're already in a passage here where most of you never thought we'd go on Christmas. Many, most, I would say for sure many, uh, you know, preachers and teachers in North America would avoid a passage of Scripture like this, not because they're bad, but because to us North Americans, this is a weird passage. We have a little, we have a little box of what we consider to be reality, and it doesn't involve stuff like this. Our little box of reality is Tim Hortons and the internet and iPhones and paychecks. We have this little world, and it's like, this is what the world is like. 
And we don't want to think about an unseen world of angels, angels and demons. Those of us who are in church, okay, we'll pay lip service. Yes, angels and demons must exist. I know that because of the Bible. But in reality, we live our lives as if they don't exist. There's a passage of scripture. I should have put it on PowerPoint. Let me, I'm just going to go there right now. Ephesians chapter 6. We have time. And even if we don't, I'm going to do it. So I just make bad choices. I'm wearing this sweater. It's just started and I'm just going to keep making bad choices. Ephesians 6, Paul says this, for we do not, this is verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, Paul says, he could be speaking directly to us North Americans. We want to explain everything in terms of human causes. We, read, we look at the news, we watch the news, we see human causes. Oh, that happened because, and then we have human causes, why it happened. Paul says, you can't explain everything in terms of only of human causes. Yes, humans, we have, you know, we cause things and we do things and we have choices to make. But he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a lot more going out there on, out there in the world than just human things that you can see with your eyes. But against, and remember, this is the New Testament, this is in the Old. But against the rulers, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. Paul says that what we see in the world around us and what we see in the news and what plays out in human history, there's a lot more going on than what you can just see with your eyes. Angels and demons, but he doesn't even just use angels and demons. He talks about cosmic powers, powerful forces of evil moving behind the events of history, causing things to happen here on this earth. There's a titanic struggle that started in Genesis 3.15 when God said, a human being is going to crush your head. A titanic struggle was instigated between these forces of darkness and God trying to stop this from happening. And what we're reading about in Genesis 6 is Satan's first big shot to keep this Messiah from being born. And so what he did is he sends down some of these sons of God. And he said these sons of God, over the years again, many Western teachers have tried to explain this away. And what they'll do is they'll say the sons of God is not talking about angelic beings. It's talking about godly men, good people who love God. And, and, but I want you to notice how this whole story makes absolutely no sense if the sons of God here means people who love God, like godly men, okay? Because then what this story is saying is that godly men found, you know, human women attractive and had married them and had babies with them, and their babies were evil giants. Look at the next verse, okay? The next verse says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This story makes absolutely no sense if the sons of God are godly men. Godly men got married with, with human women and had evil giants, and then God had to send a flood to wipe everyone out. Makes no sense. Doesn't tie into the greater storyline. Furthermore, the phrase sons of God is used a half dozen different times in the Old Testament. Every single time, without exception, that it is used in the Old Testament, it always refers 100% of the time to a powerful ruling class of angelic beings. I'll show you just a couple of passages. I could show you many. You say, what does this have to do with Christmas? You are going to see. <laughs> and you're going to understand the whole Old Testament better as a result as well. But let's just take a quick tour, two verses only, and I could show you more. Who are these sons of God? If we go to Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7, Job has been suffering. He's been crying out to God. Why? Why do I have to go through this? And God answers him now. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. I wonder if I could have showed up for that meeting with this elf shirt. I don't know. but um, <laughs> I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In other words, at creation. Where were you, Job, at creation? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There were no human beings around at creation to watch creation. Okay? But at creation, there was these angelic beings 
sons of God, and they shouted for joy creation. Look at this, Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, this is, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord at his heavenly throne. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So Satan is probably one of this ruling class of angelic beings, okay? And this is throughout in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament. It's a powerful uh, class of, of ruling angels of some kind. We don't know tons more information than that, okay? If we go back to Genesis 6 now, this story actually fits perfectly in its context and with Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, God says, it's going to be a human being who's going to crush your head. What is Satan's first big shot to stop this promise from, being ha from happening? He sends some of these, some of the fallen sons of God, some would be good as well, but he sends some of these fallen angels to earth to mingle demonic blood. And would, then, it, then, then the passage speaks about these evil giants that are so bad, God has to send a flood. He sends down uh, these evil fallen angels to mingle demonic blood into the human bloodlines. Why? The Messiah can't come from a demonic bloodline. Okay? Now, so many people wonder why, and lots of Christians don't know how to answer this question, why would God have to wipe out the whole human race in the flood. Now you understand why. This is God's mercy. Satan is trying to keep the Messiah. He's trying to, to wreck the human bloodlines so that a Messiah can't be born. If he succeeds, there will be no salvation for humanity. God in his mercy is having to stop Satan from, is trying to stop Satan from stopping Jesus. And so he has to send a flood to wipe out these Nephilim bloodlines. This is actually how the Bible dis explains why the flood had to be so extreme. It's not because God hates people. It's because God loves people. Extremely, extremely important. Well, if we follow, it's not over at the flood. God says, I've got to protect the Messianic bloodline. And of course, we have also seen from the flood how starting with Noah, he gets rid of the Nephilim. It doesn't solve the problem of evil because even Noah, a good man, has corruption in his heart. We looked at that. But it does save the messianic bloodline. That's why it has to be so severe. But if we keep going, this storyline keeps happening. So that was the first instant of the dragon trying to, eat the, trying to devour the child. Revelation 12, this dragon is trying to devour the child. The first time that happened is Genesis 6. But it keeps happening throughout the Old Testament. This is a major backbone. Satan has got to stop Genesis 3.15 from coming true a human Messiah to be born to crush his head. So what do we find? What happens next? Well, Genesis 12, right after the flood. We looked at this last week extensively. What's the next thing that happens? Abraham comes on the scene and God makes, he unfolds the promise even a bit more. In Genesis 3.15, he said this promised one is just going to be the offspring of a woman. So it could be any human being from any family, from any nation on the earth. Genesis 12, he makes the promise even more specific. He comes to Abraham and he says, actually, Abraham, this promised one isn't just going to come from any human family. It's going to, he, this promised one is going to come from your family, your descendants. Now, the moment God made that promise to Abraham, Satan had a, had a new target. He just got more specific. In Genesis 6, he's just got to wreck all the human bloodlines. After Genesis 12, Satan has got, he's got a one-track mind, and that is destroy Abraham's descendants. And again, this explains so much of the violence in the Old Testament. What's one of the very next things we read? Exodus chapter 1. Abraham's descendants, just a couple generations after him because of a famine, have to go into the land of Egypt. And what happens to them in the land of Egypt? Well, Exodus chapter 1 tells us. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. I love that. The more you try to oppress God's people, the more you can't stop them. Okay? But now look what happens next. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't this sound a little parallel or familiar to the Christmas story? What does Herod do? Kill all the baby boys. Why? You've got to knock out this promised one. 
What is Pharaoh doing here? On the human level, we see Pharaoh is insecure about Egypt. But remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. There's bigger things than what you see in the human. The bigger picture is behind Pharaoh is Satan trying to kill all the baby boys. Why? If you knock out all the baby boys here of the Jewish people, you've knocked out Abraham's line. That's it for Genesis 3.15 and the promised seed. The promised one is going to crush his head. Now in Genesis 6, Satan goes for the knockout punch. God sends the flood as his answer. In Exodus 1, Satan comes in with Pharaoh. We're going to kill all the baby boys. God miraculously delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. What's the very next thing that happens after that, right? I told you I'm going to take you on a whirlwind tour uh, of the Old Old Testament. What's the very next thing that happens? Moses leads them out out of the land of Egypt. They go through the wilderness and they come to the promised land. This is, this is their, now they're supposed to conquer it right off the bat. They send in 12 spies, okay? And what do the spies find in the promised land? No coincidences here. Let's read it. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they brought, back, or they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. Now, time out. Moses wrote this book. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? So Moses is the one who wrote Genesis 6. Okay? He's the one who wrote the whole story about the the sons of God and the Nephilim and the flood. Moses wrote the book of Numbers here as well. When he uses that word Nephilim, it is not a common term in the Old Testament at all. Okay? When he uses this term Nephilim, this, he is intentionally, on purpose, consciously w- drawing our attention back to Genesis 6. Now, of course, this is one of those places where I wish there was a lengthy footnote in the Bible. A lengthy footnote explaining exactly how they came back after the flood. Uh, there's lots like, uh, and I'll say this again probably in this message, this is not a tame book. I mean, those of you with young kids, you give your kids this thing to read it, and then they come and tell you some of the things, you go, ooh, I forgot that was in there. <laughs> and there's lots of things in here that you read and you go, wow, I would like some more explanation there. And I've got a running list that when Jesus comes back, I need some of his time, and I want to ask him some questions, and this is one of them. There's many theories, but Moses doesn't tell us, but he clearly draws our attention back. I don't know, possibly some other sons of God, not the first batch, the New Testament talks about them. I don't want to get into the trail of passages, but the New Testament talks about the ones at the flood, says that they are locked up, talks about them in two or three different places in Peter and Jude. But maybe some other ones came on a smaller scale and did it again. However it happens, Moses is very clear when they come back to the promised land, it's these Nephilim, like Genesis 6, here again, these evil, demonic giants, these creatures. And again, all, this is all about the Messianic bloodline. Now, it's, it's very interesting to me. How come they're here? Of all the places to be, Israel comes back out of the land of Egypt and they come to the promised land and here are these Nephilim. Why are they there? I'll tell you why. None of this is coincidence. None of this is by chance. In Genesis chapter 12, when God made the promise to Abraham that's going to come through your descendants, he also made another promise. He said, I'm going to give to your descendants this piece of land and he spelled it out exactly. It is no coincidence that 400 years later, Abraham's descendants come out of Egypt and when they get back to this piece of land, inside that piece of land are Nephilim again. Are Nephilim again. See, and this is absolutely so important for us to understand Christmas, the Old Testament, but also why there's so much violence in the Old Testament. Okay? People have this uh, concept, and I heard it again recently. I, I, I w- met with a man, who, an atheist guy, and and he was saying some of this stuff to me too. Like, I've re- he had read the Old Testament, in fact, the whole Bible. And he said, that, like, how can you love a God like that? He's, he's genocidal. He's racist. He's violent. Actually, that's not who God is. We don't understand the storyline. It is so important. God is not a racist. I showed you this last week, but we're going to go back to the promise of Abraham. I have to show you something. God is not into ethnic cleansing, and he's not a racist. Let's go back to the original promise to Abraham, which we looked at last week. We won't spend much time there, and then we'll, we'll come out of it again. But Genesis chapter 12, this is the promise God made to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth. Right from the very beginning, right from the very beginning, God says, I'm not just blessing the Jewish people. I'm, I'm not just blessed. I'm going to bless them, but I'm not just going to bless your descendants. This is for all the ethnic groups. Now, this promise is like a foundational cornerstone promise for the whole Old Testament. You must view the rest of the Old Testament through this promise. God said it here and he meant it. I am going to bless all the families, every single ethnic group. So that means as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, we have to understand God does not hate other cultures and ethnic groups. His plan is to save and bless all of them, every single one. In fact, just to drive this home, and there's so many places I could go, that God is not a racist. When the, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, did you know that lots of non-Israelites, Egyptians, and other ethnicities came with them? Uh, it says this, and God saved all of them too, Exodus 12. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, a mixed multitude. That's foreigners. Okay, so, as they, so here's what happened. God sends all these mighty you know, plagues and miracles on, on the land of Egypt, and a whole bunch of people who were not Jews watched that, and they said, their God is the real God. And as the Israelites start to walk out of Egypt, they're all kind of standing around their houses and just kind of slip into the line and move on out. <laughs> right? Just kind of look both ways and I'm one too. And this huge mixed multitude, Egyptians and other Gentiles who had seen the acts of God, they all came out too. They got to pass through the Red Sea too. They got to eat the manna. Okay? They got to be God's people as well. From the very beginning, God was not racist. He promised he was going to save all the nations. He was happy to save whoever wanted to come out of Egypt with the Israelites. You say, well, why did God have the Israelites exterminate everyone uh, when they got to the promised land? Here's what you have to understand. He didn't. We have this idea that when the Israelites got to the promised land, it was like, surround a city, kill everyone, next city, kill everyone, and just kill, 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 kill. Actually, that was never the battle plan. I'm going to show you before the conquest starts, Exodus 23, God lays out the battle plan of what he wants to accomplish when they go into the promised land. Look at this. And I, that's God speaking to Moses, will send hornets before you, which shall drive out. Now, I want you to notice something. There's a big difference between driving someone out and killing everyone, isn't there? And I will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. Now, look at this. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So let's sum this up. God's goal was not to go in and kill every single person. It was removal, not extermination. Not only that, it wasn't quick, get them all out now. And archaeology confirms this. He said, I'm going to do this little by little. And the, and the removal of the Canaanites from the land of Israel, archaeology confirms, took several centuries at least. It was removal, not extermination. Now, of course, for some of you, that doesn't really help you that much. It should, but you're like, oh, but this is 2016, and that's still unfair. They were there first. I want to say two things about that. First of all, the Canaanite culture was unbelievably debauched. I cannot tell you from stage, I can't even go into details. Some of the gods they worshipped, the rituals and the things that happened in their cities, it was an utterly debauched culture beyond belief, okay? But secondly, none of them actually had to leave. Wait a minute. He said they were going to drive them out, but none of them had to leave. Okay, let me just make sure none of you are sleeping. So just give me a show of hands. How many of you know the name? Yeah, some of you raised your hand already. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> How many of you know the name Rahab? Who is Rahab? How many of you know who Rahab was, okay? So many of you, okay? Was Rahab a Canaanite or a Jew? She was a Canaanite, through and through. She was a Canaanite. Did Rahab have to leave the promised land? No. no, and none of her family either. Why? Because she gave her allegiance to the God of Israel. Look at this. Joshua chapter 2. Before the this famous story, right? She hides the spies. Before the men lay down, she, that's Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, 
I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is her statement of faith. I, I know your God is the real God. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. Then, when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And her whole family was saved. Why? God wasn't interested in just getting rid of all the Canaanites. It was a removal of a debauched culture. But any of those who wanted to switch allegiances could and could gladly stay. I could show you so many passages of Scripture. Let me just show you two. Okay? This is throughout the Old Testament. I don't know how we miss this. Isaiah 56. God says this throughout the prophet Isaiah. Let not the foreigner, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words, uh, God says through Isaiah, I don't want foreigners to feel insecure in the land of Israel. That somehow I'm, I'm less than, I'm not important because I'm not a Jew, I'm not a descendant of Abraham. God says, I don't want them feeling insecure. And then he goes on to say this, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This was God's plan all along. And look what he says in Jeremiah. And I had to cut out verses. There's more I could show you. Jeremiah 12, verse 6. This is a consistent message throughout the Old Testament. And it shall come to pass if they, speaking of foreigners in the context, will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal. Then they, those foreigners, shall be built up in the midst of my people. In other words, they will be blessed and I will bless them right in the middle of the land of Israel. God's goal was never to exterminate all the nations. He says, I want to bless all the nations. So his goal wasn't Israelites go in and kill every single person. It was to remove this debauched culture. But any of those people who wanted to stay behind and switch their allegiance to the one true God, Yahweh, could stay and be blessed among the Israelites. You say, well, what about those cities where God tells the Israelites to kill everybody? Okay? First of all, it happens less frequently than you think. We have this idea that kill everyone is throughout the whole conquest of the promised land. It's actually, if you go and look for it, it's less than you think. Okay? But there are. There are a few instances where it is kill everyone. So what's with the kill everyone? And now we come full circle back to why Moses says in Numbers chapter 13, there were Nephilim in the land. Dr. Michael Heiser is an expert in ancient Hebrew and, and uh, ancient uh, biblical Middle Eastern uh, culture. He's done an extensive uh, study of this. There is, it is no accident that when the Israelites get to the land of the promised land, there are, we know of at least four uh, different groups of Nephilim. They have different names. Names like terror, stranglers, different things that they were called, literally crazy names. But there was at least four different tribes or groups of these Nephilim in the promised land. And it's very interesting. If you go through each of the verses where God says, kill everyone, it always happens within one of these areas where there is this Nephilim. It's right back to Genesis 6. Why did God have to send a flood to wipe everyone out? It's not because he hates people. It's because he had to save the messianic bloodline so he could save people. It's the same in the promised land. This is Satan taking another shot to knock out the messianic bloodline. He's got to mess up Abraham's descendants and mess up that bloodline either destroy them all or mess up the bloodline so that this Messiah can't be born to crush his head. And we could go on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. The Assyrians try, want to wipe out the Israelites. Then after that, they try mixing in the bloodlines again, trying to stop the Messiah. This is the story of the Old Testament, okay? So just to recap, and Christmas is the culmination of this story. 315, I'm going to send a human being, the, the offspring of a woman, Christmas is the culmination of it. The Old Testament is this massive war. Genesis 3.15, there's the promise. Genesis 6, Satan takes a shot with the sons of God. God answers with the flood. Exodus 1, Satan got to wipe out all the baby boys of Abraham's descendants. God responds, miraculously rescues them. Numbers 13, there's Nephilim in the land. God says we have to exterminate them. He saves them from the Assyrians and Babylonians. And then, after 4,000 plus years, 
of this titanic struggle going on behind the scenes. You can't see it, but Satan desperately trying to keep this Messiah. What we see in Revelation 12, the dragon desperately trying to devour the child again and again and again to keep the prophecy from happening. And suddenly, after 4,000 plus years of titanic struggle, a baby is born. Amen. A baby is born in a town of Bethlehem. And the crazy thing is, you'd think after 4,000 years of struggle and all of Satan's different attempts, you'd think, uh, you know, like if I'm God, and thankfully I'm not, right? And the rest of you too. Thankfully none of you is God. You'd think after all this struggle and all the things Satan has done, you'd think if you're going to have a baby born, like have the baby born somewhere protected. But no, 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 no. He sends his baby 4,000 years. The dragon has been trying to devour this baby. He sends his baby right under Herod's nose. No protection. Bethlehem, I looked it up yesterday, is 7.1 kilometers. That's less than five miles from Jerusalem. And there sits Herod in his gigantic fortified palaces, legions of soldiers at his beck and call, secret police. He is paranoid. He is evil. He is incredibly violent. Okay? Like if I'm God, I'm thinking, let's have Jesus born somewhere else under guard. But no, no, no. The creator of the universe is utterly unable to feel fear. And so he sends a baby into a manger, utterly unprotected, 7.1 kilometers from Herod, right under his nose. And Herod sits on his throne, enacting, you know, uh, affairs of state and making wicked decrees and, and causing violence. And right under his nose, as he does all this stuff, the king of kings has been born 4.8 miles away from him. And he has no idea. And you almost get the sense that God is toying with Satan a little bit because not only does he have the baby born right under his nose, he sends the wise men to Satan's door to tell him that he's been born. Like, have you ever thought about this? The angels in heaven are watching the wise men go to Herod. And they're going, shh, God! Send me, 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 me. I'll go tell them not to go there. Me, 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 please, me, me. Shh. Don't let them go there, right? And these guys, I mean, talk about naive. They're called wise men, but they were naive. Okay, Matthew chapter two, can we read this? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, why would you say that to a king? We don't have a lot of experience with kings these days. But if history is any teacher, they tend to be a little insecure about their thrones. Isn't that true? So you don't just show up to a king and say, hey, we heard that another king was born around here somewhere. And especially someone like Herod. So they just show right up there. This baby is 4.8 miles away, completely unprotected. He's got a young mom and a, and a dad who isn't even his, his blood dad, right? But a virgin mom and Joseph, his dad, that's it, 4.8 miles away. And the wise men show up right at the door and say, by the way, he's been born. Could you tell us where he is? I can just imagine the hubbub in hell. Think of it, 4,000 years. This is the entire Old Testament. The dragon has been looking to devour this child and now he's here. These wise men, the words are not hardly out of their mouth, and every demon of hell is on absolute high alert. Absolute high alert. The entire army. Why on earth would God tip his hand like this? Two things. First of all, like I said before, he is utterly unafraid of anything. The sovereign God of the universe, Satan is powerful compared to us human beings, but he is nothing compared to the one who created him. He's utterly unable to feel fear, but secondly, he always announces what he's doing. He announces to the shepherds, he announces to the wise men, but he even announces to wicked King Herod and the obstinate, rebellious religious leaders. Why? because he gives everyone a chance to respond. Utterly, because he's utterly unafraid, he can announce. 
And he goes even to evil King Herod. He knows how wicked he is. He knows how obstinate and rebellious the religious leaders are. But he goes anyway because everyone gets a chance. Everyone gets a chance to respond to the Messiah. And you know what's sad? Well, let's read the next couple of verses here. And I'm going to show you something really, really sad. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. And now they're going to quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You know what's sad? The religious leaders knew. 7.1 kilometers away, and not one of them can be bothered to go and look for themselves. That's sad. God announces it to everyone because he wants everyone to have a chance. It's 4.8 miles away, And these religious leaders knew where it was supposed to happen and not one of them can be bothered to strap on their running sandals and take a little jog. Now before we're too harsh on them though, maybe we need to think about ourselves this Christmas. All those religious leaders couldn't even be bothered to go and investigate for themselves. How many of us this Christmas season are too busy to give glory to God? Too busy at the family gatherings to actually give glory to the one whom the family gatherings are all about. Too busy in all the shopping and and busyness of the gatherings and stuff to get up early and spend some time at the feet of the one. This thing started in Genesis 3.15. He's carried it out and he saved us by his blood. But we're too busy to go and investigate on our own and to spend some time at his feet this Christmas season to worship and love him. No doubt they had good reasons too. They had dinner plans. They had all kinds of things. Too busy to go just a few miles away and investigate for themselves. Well, we know how the rest of this story plays out, don't we? God is always 10 steps ahead of Satan. So he tells Satan exactly what he's doing. I mean, it must be frustrating to be Satan, hey? (laughs) You're in your council chambers making plans and God knows everything you're saying and thinking. So he sends the baby Jesus in a manger right under Herod's nose and still they can't get him. And so he, he's saved. And so this is this storyline. 4,000 plus years, the dragon's been trying to devour this child. This partic- the story itself, the grand story isn't over until Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. But this particular story, the stopping of the child, this Genesis 3.15 promise, that story culminates now. The Bible doesn't tell us any more hardly at all about Jesus' childhood or his adolescence. But... Satan still wasn't finished trying to stop the prophecy. What's the next thing we read in the book of Matthew? Matthew chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized. What happens right after that? He goes out into the wilderness and who shows up? Satan. What's he trying to do now? He's trying to tempt him to give up his messianic calling. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll worship me. Why? Because if he'll give up his messianic calling, Genesis 3.15, this is forefront of Satan's mind. You can't crush my head if you worship me. So he tries to tempt him to give up his messianic calling. Jesus won't do it. Three years of ministry happens, and Satan says, I have got to kill this one yet. I couldn't kill him as a child. I've got to try again. And so we read Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan, this is all part of this battle that's been going on since the very beginning. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, into Judas called Iscariot. But now this is where the story takes a sudden and drastic turn. For 4,000 plus years, Satan has tried to stop this prophecy from coming true. This Genesis 3.15. And every time he tries, God thwarts him. Genesis 6, he sends the sons of God. God sends the flood. Exodus 1, Pharaoh tries. God delivers. In every single case, 4,000 plus years of frustration, Satan tries and God thwarts him. But now suddenly, Jesus gives himself up. And Satan, in his arrogance and selfish pride can't see the trap. In his selfishness, he can't even conceive how the death of the Messiah could be his undoing, how a sacrifice could work against him. He can't see how his winning this war could actually be for his eternal loss. And so in his exuberance, he nails Jesus to a cross. And again, I wonder... 
what that must have felt like for Satan and all the forces of hell. This wasn't just a story that appeared out of nowhere. It's a four, by this point, it's over 4,000 years old. This ongoing battle, the dragon trying to devour the child, and now there dies Jesus on the cross. I can't imagine after 4,000 plus years how they must have celebrated. All of hell just comes unhinged. We did it! Genesis 3.15, we're going to make it. He can't crush our heads. And then on the third day, and then on the third day, an epic victory turns out to be a colossal mistake. An epic victory turns out to be a colossal mistake. It turns out that when you fight against God, even when you win, you lose. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan had hung himself. The very instrument he had used to win this 4,000 plus year war. I'm, the dragon has got to devour the child. He uses it and then God fashions that very weapon, turns it back on himself and drives it through his heart. Turns out that all along, that all along, Satan's plan to win had been a part of God's plan from the very beginning for him to win. If the rulers of this age had understood this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what do we do with this? I'll tell you what we do. We worship him. We worship him. This is the sovereign God of the universe whom we adore and love. He made a way for us. He took it on himself. He did it for us. I have only two challenges for you this week, this Christmas week. First of all, make time to worship and acknowledge Jesus at your family gatherings this Christmas. He really is the reason for the season. And secondly, I would challenge you to join me this week, every morning leading up to Christmas. Let's set aside extra time to sit at his feet and worship and adore him. We're going to finish with a song of worship, but I just want to pray. Lord Jesus, sovereign king of the universe, we love you. We love you and we adore you. You are worthy of our praise. We can hardly wait to meet you when you return to set up your kingdom. Thank you for your sovereign goodness. We need fear, no thing, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. You are far more powerful than Satan or any of the forces of evil in this world. I pray that as we seek you this week, a, a, a zeal and a passion for you would be kindled in our hearts. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.